right. Okay, cool. Welcome back to What's Next, uh, social media podcast number three. And uh, we're so glad that you've joined us. Yeah, today we have a special guest with us. We have Dr. Alan Lee with us. Welcome, Dr. Lee, to uh, the What's Next podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you, Daniel Michael. It's good to have uh, the chance to be with you guys. Yeah, thanks yeah. for coming. Yeah, it's awesome. So uh, for those people who don't know who you are, just tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, what you do for a living, and why we decided to invite you on this podcast. All right, thanks. Well, I uh, work at Kingswood University in uh, here in New Brunswick. I've been here for 17 years, and I direct the counseling department. So that means some classroom work, and it means working in the counseling center as well. Uh, before moving to New Brunswick, I worked for 10 years in the Department of Psychiatry in a community hospital in various uh, sections within that department. Uh, prior to that, I was in youth and young adult ministry. So there's a little bit of, of different things that kind of join together into one conversation. Yeah, so uh, you were my professor at Kingswood and my wife, Natalie, you were her professor as well. She actually was in the counseling program, so she had more courses with you. So um, I knew you as a professor. And Mike, did you ever have Dr. Lee as a professor? Or? So Dr. Lee, I did have as a professor, and he also went to college with my parents. Oh, really? So I've known uh, Alan pretty much my entire life uh, in one facet or another. Okay. Wow. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. 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 Well, here's a strange little secret that Mike's mother and I were soccer season cheerleaders for one season, which means nothing other than people climbed on my back for, for <laughs> one season. That's it. <laughs> I was That's told awesome. I was never allowed to share that secret, so I didn't want to bring that up. <laughs> we might we might have to come back and edit this out. I'm not sure. Okay, okay. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. That's awesome. And uh, so you, when was it that you got your PhD from, you got it from Liberty, correct? From Liberty, yeah. It would have been 2017. Okay. Um, yeah, so we're just like really happy to have you because Obviously, we're kind of like two amateurs talking about uh, social media and mental health. So it's nice to have someone who actually knows a little bit more what they're talking about joining us uh, to, to lend some validity and research to what they're saying. So yeah, we're, we're happy to have you on. So today, what we really want to focus on is this conversation around social media. Uh, we've been talking about how it's been affecting us. We talked about disinformation and we've talked about kind of the mechanistic uh, parts of social media, how it will show us things. We've talked a little bit about internet security, but this episode, we really just want to focus in on how is it affecting our mental health and what is social media doing to us in that sphere? Obviously, uh, within the past 10 years, it seems like the whole conversation of mental health has become a lot more prominent in our society. And so I would just start off by asking the question, like, how do you think or how have you seen in your own life mental, uh, social media affecting people's mental health? Mm, that's a, a great question. Let me go back uh, to uh, just give a little bit of disclosure. I am one of those guys who is not really on social media that much. 
I, I do have a Facebook account that I, I pop in for maybe 10 minutes a day just to check birthdays and current pictures, those kinds of things. And that's pretty much it. I'm also the guy who uses his cell phone just as a phone and a text mechanism. I have no, no data. So I'm probably the rookie in this conversation uh, as far as social media itself. In fact, I had to, to look around to see exactly what apps were out there for social media. But I think when I look at how it affects mental health, and, I, and several of the research will point back to this, that there are a lot of things that are uncertain in this. And we probably won't see the full development for a number of years moving forward. I think that there's enough data to point to some areas of concern currently, and even anecdotal data, as, as you kind of look around you, you'll probably see some of these things as well. But there are some correlations that are being drawn between social media, amount of time on social media, and the impact of loneliness for the individual. Loneliness often sparks into or develops into issues of anxiety and or depression. And then uh, correlations between social media and self-esteem. And uh, if you guys have been around this topic, you're I'm sure familiar with the idea of fear of missing out. And yeah. that's one of the things that seems to come to the foreground a lot. And the sense of, uh, I've got to see what everybody else is doing for fear that I might be missing out on something. Mm -hmm. I think what's often lost in that translation is that uh, probably even for myself, most of the photos that I would put up on Facebook are photos that I would be happy with that would represent the best of, not necessarily the reality of. And, and so rarely do we get maybe the real life story of somebody. And if we do, it may be even exaggerated to, to the other extreme but maybe the more mundane gets lost, you know, like the dog got sick on the living room carpet. Well, that happens to many people. We don't really see that on social media. And so we kind of go to one extreme or the other. Yeah, that's a, a really great point. Just that idea that, you know, people tend to post the highlights of their day, not the mundane parts. No one mm -hmm. live streams themselves driving to work quietly for 10 minutes because no one's going to watch that. We get the highlights. We get the really quick bits of your life that are, you know, mildly interesting. And we leave out all the mundane parts that really make it meaningful in the, in the long run, but it doesn't work well with how social media is trying to grab our attention. And so I think at least from what I've seen is that leads to like a lot of insecurity and identity issues and not feeling like you measure up to what you're seeing online. It looks like everybody else's life is a hundred times better than your own. And oh my goodness, that person was traveling and they had this beautiful view and they went to this amazing restaurant and I'm just sitting at home. So. Right. We and should try that. We should yeah. do that uh, drive to work for 10 minutes and just see what, uh, what happens. But, yeah. See how many people uh, look at that. <laughs> yeah. That's right. But it got me thinking about, uh, I think it's uh, Theodore Roosevelt. He said, comparison is the thief of joy, mm. right? And in social media, that's what we're doing. We're seeing all the highlights and we're comparing it to the mundane moments. 
because when we're looking at it, we're in probably a mundane moment, right? Hopefully you're not looking through social media when life is, you know, doing something exciting around you, you might be, but typically you're looking when things are slow, things are mundane. Mm. And now you're comparing it though, to all the highlights that are happening around you. Right. And I think that idea is probably more applicable now over the last nine months or so when life for many people have slow, has slowed down and the exciting things are not as frequent as they may have been before that. And so there's that pressure to, <clears throat> excuse me, even stage something to make it look like my life is exciting. And then for the rest of us who are sitting at home in the middle of mundane, then we feel that that greater separation. And so what may have been uh, intended as a connection becomes a disconnection. And I think a lot of the times uh, it's uh, the unintended consequences. I don't think people are nefariously trying to only post the highlights of their week. So as I'm just thinking through this kind of concept and this idea, I know that during the lockdown and the height of the pandemic, me and my wife, Natalie, we would often go for walks and we live pretty close to the ocean. And I'm kind of similar. I don't really post things on social media that much. I, you know, check it and I like to consume content, but I'm not really big into like posting my pictures or what's going on in my life. But Natalie is a little bit more of a poster. Uh, and as we're going for the walks, it was only when we got down to the ocean that she would stop and take a picture of the ocean. And I don't think that she was trying to like show off to people or make people feel bad because they weren't able to walk near the ocean. It's just a simple fact that we want to get the most likes possible. We want to get the most reach with our posts and because it feels good, it feels good when people comment on our stuff and they like the things that we post. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that because I think that we were created to crave encouragement and that social interaction, but it's just the unintended consequences of that I think is really what's at play here. Right. And I happen to be a friend with Natalie on Facebook. And so I'm still working through the envy of the fact that I don't live <laughs> by the ocean and you do, but I'll get through that. That's my deal. Yeah, yeah. I know that we've joked about that too. Like during the lockdown, especially the, the main part of the lockdown, my wife and I were both working from home. My wife was one week back from maternity leave. And then we have two young kids uh, that were, you know, um, four and a year when we started, well, three and a year old when we started this and like they're screaming in the background. And, and I remember we're having zoom meetings, staff meetings, and they're screaming in the background and like you guys are posting these lovely walk videos and <laughs> yeah, we were just each so other like quiet coffee, and smoothies. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, and, and social media is like, I'm like, I want that. I, like, I want the quiet. Like, I love these kids, but they just need to stop for a minute. I want coffee. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I totally get that. <laughs> yeah. And thinking about the idea of like fear of missing out or even just like uh, one thing that as I've been reading about social media that people are saying is it was from about 2009 to 2011, there was a fundamental shift in the design of social media. And that was when Facebook introduced the like button and then pretty much every other social media app copied them and Twitter introduced the retweet button, the idea that you could share other people's content to give it further reach. And then of course that spread throughout the different social media platforms. But just this idea of when you post something on social media, say you post a picture and it gets hundreds of likes. And I'm thinking, you know, for adults, but especially like for teens as 
I work with a lot of teens, like when they post a picture on social media and it gets 500 likes, like that is an insane amount of like positive social encouragement where you get to scroll through a list and think, wow, all of these people like me. And like, that is such a powerful, just like, uh, you know, psychological reward system that like, when was the last time in any of our lives that we had like 200 people come up to us in a row and say, I really liked what you did today. Or like, you know, give us some sort of word of encouragement. And so as I'm just like thinking about it, it's like, no wonder we're addicted to it because that's where we're getting all of our, our encouragement from in our society. Yeah. And I think an important thing to add to that, Daniel, is the fact that uh, science is really kind of tapping into that and saying, we really do get a dopamine hit when, when we get those reinforcements that there is something that goes on in our brain that helps to reinforce it. Uh, so next time I'm going to check that. And if I don't get 500 likes next time, I feel like I failed or I feel like I, I haven't met my standard and then it doesn't feel so good in the other direction. But there really is something psychologically that goes on or even in, in our brain science that goes on in that. And the yeah. interesting thing is like you even said that's 200 people who like me, but are they actually 200 people who like me or they're just interested in that moment, that snippet of content that snippet of my life that I've shown um, or not. Like in, I was just looking at my Facebook and I have 1200 friends on Facebook, but do I really have 1200 friends? Like I probably could go through that list and be like, I'm not really sure who some of these people are anymore in my life. Um, well, you have one less friend now because I don't have 1200 likes. And so I'm again, envious of you. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course I chose a pretty exaggerated number, 500 likes. I don't think I've ever gotten 500 likes on anything on social media, but even if you just get like three and you're not like, like what, how many days of the year do you have three separate people who come up to you and encourage you? Mm -hmm. And like, if you post something like, you know, a thought and three people like it, it's like, wow, three people liked what I said, like that doesn't really happen to us that much. And so I wonder if it almost just like speaks to our culture and kind of like the void that there is in us actually being affirming and being encouraging to one another. Right. One of the reasons I, I kind of go on to Facebook and it's usually a morning routine because I check the little birthday box over in the corner so that I can, so I can wish birthdays. But I think if we're just completely honest with ourselves, if that happens to be our birthday, we check that periodically to see how many people are acknowledging my day. Mm -hmm. Which again, Daniel, you're right. In reality, we may walk past a couple people that will say, hey, oh, I heard it's your birthday. Happy birthday. It's not the same kind of hit. And if we feel like we, oh, maybe didn't get as much notice this year as I did last year, then it becomes a personal thing. And, and, even something out of what is intended to be very helpful and encouraging can come back to feel like baggage to wear if we're not careful with that. So one of the uh, apps that's really popular with teens right now is TikTok. And uh, I've downloaded it a little bit, uh, looked into it. But as I've been reading about it and just trying to learn why it's so addictive for the teens, one of the things that I came across was this idea that uh the way that TikTok is programmed is that there's actually no distinction between a view and a like. And so it inflates the number of dopamine hits that you get because for every view and for every like, you get the same uh, kind of reward. 
Whereas on Facebook or YouTube or pretty much any other social media platform, there's a difference between the number of views that a post gets and then how many likes. And so essentially what they're doing is they're trying to maximize the amount of dopamine that you can get from using their app because they know that you know at the base psychological neurobiological level the reason that you keep coming back is for that dopamine hit and uh so you know these things are intentionally engineered to be addictive and to give us that dopamine hit that rush that makes us feel good mm -hmm. and i'll be honest with you too I, I almost feel like it splashes over even to how i use my email sometimes where i may shoot off an email and either my patience level is not what it needs to be, or I'm, I'm eager to get reinforcement for whatever that email was. So I keep going back to see if the response has been there, particularly if it's sent to more than one individual, which again, that's not how that was designed to work. But sometimes the, you know, the outflow of social media kind of slaps over into that. So we've been talking quite a bit about the impact of social media from the side point of likes, returned information. Uh, but what about the side effect of like online trolls, online controversy, mm -hmm. um, when two people kind of lock horns, which has become much more prominent in the last couple of months as uh, the election, I think COVID has played a bit of that. People are feeling isolated. Um, so as people are confronting each other, um, what do you think that's playing into with people's psychology and their emotional well-being? Mm. I think it's complicated, and I think some of that will depend upon the age of the individual or the individuals that are um, a part of that. I do think that when we look at younger youth and children in particular, some of that bumps up against the idea of bullying. And some of the outplay of that then is very negative for the individual. And it, it doesn't always have to be a continual dialogue. It could be just one or two comments that don't set right or kind of spark uh, some, some further internal things for the individual. I think when we come closer into adulthood, I think we still run into that idea of bullying. We likely manage it a little differently, but I think the fact that I can speak through my computer or through my device, as opposed to needing to speak face-to-face -face with somebody, um, emboldens me to maybe say or do things that I wouldn't normally do. So some of my guards come down just a little bit that can add some fuel to whatever fire is is starting to burn there. So I think the takeaway there is to just have extra caution, maybe, when there's something that we feel very passionate about, we need to make sure that we're kind of buffering that under the, the covering of uh, respect and understanding and uh, even empathy for individuals. I think too, like just thinking about the online world for whatever reason, I think that people, maybe it's because you don't have to say things face to face, but like people will say things online that they would never say to someone face to face. Mm -hmm. And I know that like, this is even transforming the way that a whole generation likes to communicate with each other. I know it's true for me, but like, I much prefer emailing someone or texting someone 
versus calling them on the phone. And for a lot of the older generation, they think that's like completely ridiculous. And then for the generation that's coming up behind me, it's even more pronounced. It's this that like, there's almost like a aversion to like face-to-face -face interaction because there's so much more communication I think that's happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I think going back to kind of the idea of like the online trolls and harshness, uh, I think it's just easier to be mean to people when you don't have to like actually look them in the eyes and say something hurtful to them. Right. Right. And, and if we come across the true troll who's out to cause damage, there's lots of opportunity to manipulate somebody uh, because we can represent ourselves as somebody we are not, and we can influence somebody by, um, words we say to them, pictures we send, send to them. And so manipulation really becomes an easy thing if we want to use it poorly. Yeah, and just thinking too, like we talked about all the positive social feedback that social media can have, but again, there is also the potential for negative feedback. And we know that like you could have like 10 comments on a post and they're all positive. And then there's that one comment that's negative and like, that's the one that really sticks with you and just kind of, you can't like get past it. So yeah, I'll be up all night pondering. Why did they say that? Like, what was wrong with them and how am I going to respond? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think we seem to on some level forget that whoever that person was probably isn't in our inner circle anyhow, but we give them a lot of weight and power to influence how we respond to their comment. Hmm. So uh, one of the things is we've been talking a lot about this uh, documentary, The Social Dilemma, that had come out that was all about social media. And there was one point in it where they were talking about the effect of uh, social media on mental health and kind of like the correlation. And specifically, they were talking about in teenagers. And uh, so I just want to share some of what they had said. So they were talking about the increase in the rate of uh, suicide attempts. Uh, actual suicide story in the United States. Uh, so compared from the 2001-2010 average, it's up 70% by 2020 uh, for girls age 15 to 19. For girls age 10 to 14, it's up 151%. Wow. Uh, hospital admissions for non-fatal self-harm, uh, same time period since like 2010 to 2020, up 62% for girls age 15 to 19, up 189% for girls age 10 to 14. And so it seems like this is affecting teens in a disproportionate way. And I know one of the theories on that is that teens are typically the most uh, active social media users. So um, that would kind of go to reinforce the idea that social media really is causing these negative mental health consequences. Mm -hmm. But I was just wondering, like in your experience of working in a university setting, do you feel like you've noticed any sort of shift in the past, say, 10 to 20 years in like the mental health of the student population in general? Um, I think that's a great question. And I think that there are some variables at play, probably a lot to nail down. So it's hard to draw some great correlations to that. I think we are in a climate over the last 10 years or so where it's more comfortable to talk about our mental health than it has been. It's, um, 
it's not just accepted, it's really advocated because we're finding that that brings better health. And so there's a freedom to talk mm. a little bit more about some of the struggles, which is certainly a positive, but it brings to light some things that may have been going on for a very long time that we just weren't, we didn't have our focus on. And so that's going to come into the data to represent instances um, in regard to that. Yeah. I was listening to an interesting podcast and they were talking about this very idea. The, uh, you know, there is this increase in, um, I guess, markers that would typically use to measure mental health. But the question is, is that a function of individuals experiencing worse mental health or is it uh, a function of the culture being more accepting and being more open? And one of the things that uh, it was a guy, Jonathan Haidt, uh, he was talking about was just the idea of like, when we're talking about like actual suicides, like people coming to the point where like they do take their own life or um, actual like hospital admissions for self-harm, he was kind of making the argument that those are like pretty objective measures in the sense that like maybe there's like some, uh, I guess, like protection against just like, you know, people being more willing to self-report. So would you have like any thoughts on that kind of explanation of the data? Um, yeah, and I think you're right. I think, you know, uh, most data is collected by self-report and what we share is, uh, very different. So a lot of the, a lot of the standard research usually presents higher for females because they have a greater comfort level in self-reporting as opposed to, to males. And so that's kind of an understanding, um, in terms of mental health and particularly issues of suicide, like you said, most of that is not just self-report, but it's uh, self-presentation. Mm. Yeah, that's a good And, and good so word. I think that, that makes a difference. I don't know if either of you have uh, read the book or come across the book called iGen. It was published in 2017. And Jean Twenge is the, the author of that. And her thought is, and essentially the essence of the book, is that from 1995 forward, those who were born within that era has never been without internet. And so that's why she calls it iGen. Many call it Gen Z. Uh, she prefers iGen because it's more descriptive. But she does a great job in kind of highlighting that culture that individuals born in that time frame have never been exposed to anything outside of. And, and a part of that culture is because I can connect on the internet, I connect less in person. So even if I'm in the same home, my tendency is not to sit in the living room with my family. My tendency is to go to my bedroom and be online. And I think that may speak to uh, my own personal hypothesis may speak to the increase in some of these these issues is that if I'm believing somebody across my screen, then I don't have a buffer to test that with anybody else if I don't come out of my room or come off my screen to be able to do that. Hmm. The difference would be if I if I'm sparked by something that I see on social media and then I take that and have a conversation with my parents or a trusted friend or a youth pastor, that helps me to kind of figure that out. But if I'm 
accustomed to living in the, the isolation of my own space and the voices that come from outside of my home, I may be more prone to act upon that before I test it with somebody else. And I think something that's good to that and something you were talking about earlier is recognizing that when we were kids, I was born before 95, my parents knew who my friends were and they knew who I was interacting with. And interaction was limited to those who were physically present around us, right? Like I didn't have distant friends that I was connecting with, but now uh, for parents to know who their kids are interacting with is almost impossible. Mm -hmm. So who you're considering your friends, your parents won't know, and they don't have to be in a physical proximity to your house, your school. You could be friends with somebody on the other side of the world who could be feeding positively or negatively into your life. Mm -hmm. And your parents would have limited idea or understanding of what's happening. And then you just have this influence. And like you said, for the younger kids, like the implications of negative thoughts and how that borders on bullying and how that affects the emotional health. Uh, it, it's almost frightening. Yeah. And when we think of the commitment of time, a lot of the research points to the fact that most people are on social media about two hours a day. Some uh, other stats point closer to five hours a day. All of that points to poor mental health. And the counter to that says 30 minutes should be the max of, of daily social media. Beyond that, you start to impact mental health. And so you and I can have a face-to-face -face conversation or even this conversation we're having now is impacting me. We've been talking for about 30 minutes now and you've already impacted me. Imagine that I devote five hours of my day to you in isolation. Imagine how you could impact me. Wow. And I think one of the hard things with that too is I know like my experience is pretty anecdotal, but in my experience, like the teens that I'm working with, if you ask them to go on their screen time on their iPhone or whatever phone they have, and just how much screen time do you have a day? It's like seven or eight hours, like consistently. It is like, it is a lot of screen time. But one of the hard things about saying, oh, well, you just need to only spend 30 minutes a day is it's like, well, all my friends are on this platform. And if I'm the person who's going to decide for me personally not to be a part of that, like I'm missing out on like so much of like the social interaction and plans that are being made. And so I feel like there's that tension of like, you know, it's easy to see like once this, once like a certain uh, majority is on social media, it's like so hard for like one individual to just say, you know what, I'm not going to be on there because people could be having a conversation about you. There could be all this stuff happening that you have no idea about that is like actually having a real world effect on you and different relationships that you're just completely unaware of. Right. Absolutely. And I would say more than tension. It's just, it's heavy pressure Yeah. to, to be able to do that. And it comes back to in the ideal world, what I would say is we need to find a balance, which is pretty safe across the board. You know, if we find moderation in everything we do, that's usually a good place to, to aim for. But to be able to find a balance between online time, even if it's not 30 minutes, if it's a little more than that, some kind of a balance that we can work in that direction, but then compensate the rest of the time with something else, with something 
more broad in in our life. We talked a little while ago about kind of where we see things going, projecting into the future. I think one of my greatest concerns is before too long, we're not going to know how to communicate face to face with each other. We're going to lose that skill. And anecdotally, we can see this anytime you're in a, a grocery checkout line or in a line in a dining room or a cafeteria, people don't talk to each other. They are on their phone. And I think sometimes it speaks to their anxiety and it really becomes kind of a security blanket for them. I'm uncomfortable standing here with people because I'm not accustomed to that. So I'm going to soothe myself by essentially removing myself emotionally from this location and go online. I think that opens up a lot of problems for us in the future. And unless we start to turn things back, I, I think we're going in a, in a rough spot. Um, so about seven years ago, we did an all-nighter for the youth at the church I was at. And one of our youth, we had all the youth lock their phones up in the safe. Like we actually opened a ch the church safe. We locked all the cell phones away. That was at eight o'clock. By midnight, we had to call one of the mothers to come pick up her daughter because the five hours without her cell phone, she was literally vomiting from the anxiety. She was vomiting in the toilet. And so we had to give her her phone back and she had to go home because she just couldn't be separated from her phone. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we are having, like we talked about these likes and these views, uh, we're getting these endorphin hits. We're getting these, these dopamine hits. Um, and so not to in any way take away from the seriousness of uh, alcohol addiction or substance abuse, uh, but we really have to, I think, look at how we're using social media and, and ask the question, are we becoming addicted to the, um, to the chemical response we're getting in our brain from the, the uh, reactions that we get from people who we consider our friends, our input givers. Um, and so I think that's an important part of understanding when we talk about how do we, um, how do we separate ourselves? How do we take a step back and how do we implement positive change and guards around social media, knowing that we do become very quickly addicted to these chemical reactions in our head. Mm -hmm. And, and Michael, what you talk about with the, the digital detox, I think that sometimes for us to put something away for a little while brings greater understanding of how important that thing was to me, or, or maybe not. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did uh, just a very informal, uh, call it an exercise, it wasn't really an experiment, in my classes. And I asked my students to do a breakup with their device, essentially get their phone out of their hand, get it out of their pocket, even out of their backpack for one week's time. And at the start of the week, they did a, uh, an assessment for their anxiety and depression. And at the end of the week, they did the same assessment for anxiety and depression. Outcome of that was many students couldn't do it. The wow. students that could do it found that they were wasting between two and three hours a day on their phone that they could have been doing other things, maybe assignments, which would then reduce the stress that they were feeling because they were feeling backed up. So they were losing those hours of productivity. 
or maybe just taking good care of themselves, being out for the walk as opposed to sitting in their room on the phone. For any student that completed the exercise, they all showed less anxiety and less depression even after the course of one week of putting that away. And it wasn't a complete shutdown. They still had access to it, but it brought it back to that balance, that, that greater moderation of it. So I think sometimes to, to remove ourselves is gonna bring some insight into what I need to know about this. Um, and I think to, to consider you know, some healthy practices, one of those would be, do I find myself sharing anything online that I wouldn't share with a family member? Either photos or words, is there something that, am I a different person online than, than I am in person? And I think that that's a, a kind of a good exercise to consider as well. Yeah, that's really good. Um, one of the things that I've kind of heard, and I think there are different ways to implement it, but it goes to what you're saying about uh, trying to get your students to just take a break. And I think that idea of just having, whether it's a day and you want to do some sort of digital Sabbath or whether it's you want to stop using your cell phone at eight o'clock at night and just have a little bit of free time from it. Or I know that for me, sometimes if I'm working on something that takes focus and I have my phone, or even if I just have things that are popping up on my computer, it's really, really easy to get pulled in the different directions with emails that are coming in or messages. Mm -hmm. So it could be something as simple as like silencing your phone, turning off notifications, putting it on do not disturb, and just like putting it out of sight, out of sight, out of mind. And that will just like allow your mind to focus on what you're doing. And so sometimes I think it's just those like those little kind of proactive things that will remove the ability of our devices to kind of get our attention that can really make a big difference in how we actually interact with them. Cause then we're choosing when it's a good time for us to interact with them instead of they're just constantly calling out for our attention and trying to get us to pick them up and use their apps. Exactly. And I think it gives a chance for us to replace that coping skill with maybe something that's healthier. So you're writing a research paper, Daniel, and you need a break from your focus rather than going to your phone. What would it look like if you just stood up and took a 15 minute walk and then, yeah. then came back? It gives you the same thing, probably with a greater result. Uh, so just being removing the phone gives some creativity to being able to address the issue in a different way. Now, as we've been in this pandemic for nine months, I think now, mm -hmm. uh, it's driven people even deeper into social media as the point of connection. Uh, and you mentioned at the very beginning that a part of social media is the isolation and the loneliness that it can actually bring, even though we feel like we're tied in. So what are some practical things that we can do to help break through, break down some of that loneliness that we're trying to fill with the social media, but how can we fill that void in a positive way, especially for finding ourselves uh, back in some lockdowns or shutdowns over yeah. the next, over the holidays? Absolutely. And I think it, I've been kind of talking to the negative of what social media and the internet is. There are positives and I don't, I don't want to lose that that focus. There are certainly positives. If you're a student, there are lots of things you can do in positive ways. If you're an adult, lots of positives. And I do think 
that one of the positives is the ability to connect with important people in your life across the globe with photos, with words of encouragement, with voice conversation. I think those are, are good things. But I think then you come back to the moderation and then using that in a balanced way. So I may be in isolation and I have people in another country that I wanna have a conversation. I have that conversation and then I shut down my computer and I go do something else. I go bake cookies, I go take a walk around the block, I go whatever, but I get a sense of there's life bigger than just what I see on this big or little screen. And I think that's an important consideration. When we feel like life is closing in on us, it's important that we look for ways to remind ourselves that no, it is, it's a bit bigger than this. Even some, something as simple as picking up a book that takes your mind to another place is a reminder of I'm not just isolated to this location. You mentioned positive people too. I think there's an, a necessary evaluation of who we're giving weight to in the conversations right. because anybody can weigh in on social media, right. um, but protecting ourselves to, you know, if I, in my real life outside of social media, I only give value to some people, then those are the same type of people that I should give value to on my social media and not open up be open up to everyone chiming in on my life, especially right. people who don't know who I am. Right. I think it's important to, to just throw this out too, that there are people that do not have social media accounts who are really happy. And so it, it's not a necessity for quality of life. If we use it effectively, it can add to our quality of life, but I think we could be okay. You know, before we had cordless telephones, we had corded telephones and they did the same thing. And so I think we can ha have happiness and fulfillment and contentment even without social media. But if we can use it effectively and in healthy ways, that can add to that quality of life. I was listening to uh, one podcast and they were talking about they've done studies on each individual app and asked people to rank how they feel after they use each app on their phone. And um, a lot of the typical social, social media apps that have artificial intelligence and algorithms deciding what you see next, and they're all about the attention economy and keeping you and, and keeping you scrolling. A lot of those apps had really low scores, but the highest apps on people's phones were things like Messenger for Facebook or FaceTime or your text messaging. And I think it's important to realize that there is a difference between a social media app like Facebook or Instagram or TikTok and an app like Messenger, where you have a lot more control in an app like Messenger or FaceTime of who you're in contact with and what you're seeing. And I think a, maybe like a good practical kind of like word of wisdom is like try to use like direct messages more like because the positive, I think, of social media is that it can facilitate meaningful conversations. Like right now we're talking, we're not in the same room um, and it's meaningful, but we are controlling the circumstances. We're using the social media. We're using Zoom as a tool. We're not letting it, it use us. And so I think there is kind of a distinction 
And it's good to just be aware of understanding how is this app affecting me and what is its intention when I come to it? Because when you go to a Facebook, its intention is to keep you engaged for as long as possible. When you go to Messenger, it doesn't really have that intention baked into it at this point. Right, right. I agree. I agree. Yeah, I know for me, there's a guy in the church who since the pandemic, every two to three weeks, he instant messages on Facebook, uh, Ashley and I, just to check in on us. Like, mm-hmm. have you had your coffee today? You know, how are the kids doing? And that has held more meaning for me than most of the social media interactions I've had because it's an honest conversation. It's a two-way conversation. And it's somebody mm-hmm. actually caring about my life and me rather than just the highlights that I'm throwing up on social media. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's so powerful that, that communication, even though it's on the same Facebook platform, it's much more impacting in a positive way than the social media side. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think those, like those apps can still be very addictive. Uh, you know, before Facebook, like people were really addicted to text messaging uh, and, you know, that can eat up a lot of your time and distract you too. But there, I think there is just that slight distinction still. So I'm not saying that, you know, you can just use Messenger as much as possible and it's not going to have any negative effects. But you've got 30 minutes to the day. That's it. No more. Yeah, exactly. Start the timer and then stop it. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, anything else? Any other practices that uh, come to mind? Um, again, I just, I just keep coming back to, um, the whole idea of of keeping social media in its place. And I think it's important to remember that it's designed to work for us. And whenever that it feels like those tides are shifting and we're starting to work for us or we're starting to work for social media, then I think that should be a big red flag. And you know, here's some indications of that. If I'm having a face-to-face conversation with a family member and my phone dings and I stop in mid-word to go get my phone, I've just started working for that app mm. and, I'm, and I'm no longer allowing it to work for me. Very similar to an answering machine years ago, we would let a call go to an answering service and we'd check it when we had time to do that. The immediacy of social media sometimes encroaches in the boundaries that we should be having in, in regard to that. So any place it feels like I'm beginning to work for that, I should take a minute and think about it and, and reevaluate the importance of it. Yeah, I think that's a, a great piece of advice. And uh, yeah, thanks for uh, joining us today. Um, anything else you wanted to say there, Mike? Uh, I think it's good for us all to take an Uh, consideration some practices that we feel like we can handle and try them Uh, I know for me the last two weeks I've been trying to put my phone in the kitchen downstairs we have a two level house put the phone in the kitchen downstairs at nighttime uh, so that when I'm sleeping I'm not tempted to reach over and grab my phone and like well you know trying to sleep you know reach over and grab it check what's going on or even check it first thing in the morning when I wake up Um, you know, it's not, it's not a decision. Am I checking my phone or going to the bathroom? I'm, you know, I'm going to spend the time in the morning with my family, with my kids. Um, and 
to to your mention earlier, Daniel, like people don't f- call now. Well, that's my justification for putting it downstairs. If somebody, if there's an emergency, they're going to call. That's why people call now. So, you know, I'll hear my phone ring if it, somebody calls and I'll come and get it. But if somebody's sending me a text message or something like that, I don't need to deal with it tonight. I can deal with that tomorrow. And so assuring myself that that's okay and leaving my phone somewhere else has been very liberating and has actually allowed me to sleep better the last few nights. Well, except for last night with my one-year-old being awake most of the night, but you know, when he's sleeping, having that phone in a different room uh, is very liberating and allows me to rest better. Uh, So finding some little practices like that, that really free us up from our devices can be uh, really powerful. I love, I love that, that, you know, when times are designed for something else, then keep your technology out of it. And when time is designed for technology, then go to it. And so, you know, even Michael, when your son was up in the middle of the night, you could have easily had your phone, your time should have been devoted uh, with your son. And so that's, that should have been the focus. So good for you. Good for you. Well, that's been an awesome podcast. We learned so much about social media and uh, how it affects our mental health. And uh, so hopefully today you've taken something from this that you can apply to your own life. Uh, Reach out if you have any questions. We love these conversations. Uh, And maybe there's something you can share on our social media page about something that's been impacting you that you can share with others. Or you can hit up the church with a direct message and we'll converse with you that way. So thanks for joining us. Next week, we're going to have a conversation with a couple of different people from the church from different generations about how they're using social media and how it's impacting their lives. So thanks for joining us. Mm